I'd like to reiterate the announcement that we saw in the video by Don and Elizabeth about K-Groups. Next Sunday is our annual showcase where we, after church, we have lunch here in this room, and we also have all our leader K-Group leaders here telling what they're going to be studying, kind of kind of connect you to a group. We're going to have two or three weeks where you can kind of float around and maybe check out your top two or three options. But I do want to remind you that one reason we do K-Groups, or one of the main reasons we do K-Groups, and we're going to be talking about this over the next weeks, is uh, not is simply, uh, simply don't uh, choose just for the Bible study, truthfully, because the Bible studies change. The whole year, if you're there, um, you're going to be studying one thing and then something else. Um, really connect to people who maybe that you look up to or respect or those you connect well spiritually with. Look for spiritual connections because ultimately when we sharpen one another, that's going to help us to grow to be more like Christ. And so let's really, really uh, look for opportunities to, to really connect with people and grow in our relationship beyond the surfacey stuff. And the reason we could do K-groups uh, and that K just stands for uh, the word koinonia, which means fellowship. And sometimes we think about fellowship in our maybe if we grew up in churches, you know, after church fellowship, you're going to have fried chicken on the ground and hang out with one another. But fellowship is so much more than just being together. It's, it's, it's around God's word, communion around God's word, and really uh, sharing life and opening our lives up together. And that's why we do K-groups. And that's tough to do on a Sunday morning. You come in, you sit in your seat, you hear the teaching, you sing the songs, and then you walk out. You can avoid connections completely. So I hope that you will connect to a K-group this year. So next Sunday is your chance to kind of see the groups. Uh, we're going to have a free lunch on the screen. It tells you uh, if you could bring uh, a dessert if you're A through M and then N through Z. Uh, two gallons of tea or lemonade. So if everybody could pitch in, the church is going to provide the main course. And so I hope you will uh, participate in that and also check those groups out. We're in the Gospel of Mark, but before we go to Mark, I'd like to look at a verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this whole idea of connecting to one another, this whole idea of needing one another to encourage each other. And as we talk about things like the shootings yesterday, we see that our world and um, just um, Scripture calls this is Satan's domain. He is the ruler of, of this world at some level. God allows that to happen. And so... Awful, terrible things happen in this world. And really, really bad things will ultimately happen in everyone's life in here. I said this last week, either you're getting ready to go into a crisis, you're in a crisis, or you're coming out of a crisis. That's just called living. That's just called being human and the brokenness of sin on this earth. And so we want to help each other and encourage each other as we live for Jesus in this world, and it's getting tougher and tougher, and we're more countercultural every day if we're living for Jesus and living the truths he said. But in Hebrews, it talks about this idea in communion of, uh, of stirring each other up, of, of, of encouraging each other, of uh, not neglecting meeting together, but encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. And he says, he starts off that we need to hold fast to our confession, to our hope. And so K-groups help us do that. They help us move beyond just a cultural or an intellectual understanding of Christianity, but embracing it, embracing all that Jesus is, all that he's done 
for us in the cross and in Christ. And, and, and so I hope that you will connect because I think about, you know, as we did the baptisms this morning, the, the amount of time and energy that the families have invested and this church has invested into those kids' lives in order to, for them to be able to recite the gospel and share back their faith in that way. That's, that's awesome. And thank you all for been, who have been involved in their lives through this church. Over the last week, a, a prominent news story has been um, going about, even like CNN and, and others have picked this up, because anytime you know, a preacher or someone falls that's prominent in the faith, that's a big deal, you know, and they want to make sure they push that out there. But this one kind of hits closer to home to me, because this guy's name is Joshua Harris, and maybe you definitely might not recognize him from the picture here, but you may recognize the book that he uh, wrote. If you could go to the next slide there, Brent. Um, the next slide, one more after that. Um, this guy, he wrote this book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and maybe if you were like in the 90s uh, as a teenager or a young adult, you may remember that book because it was very popular. It was about this idea of courtship. Well, you may not know this about Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris also was a pastor, a lead pastor of a huge church for nine years. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when something happens and the pastor or the leader isn't like in the same vein of churches or maybe the exact same theology as me, I kind of can dismiss that like, oh, yeah, that's why. But there's no escaping this one because Joshua Harris was in the type of churches that I would attend. He, he and I would have been on the same page for the most part theologically, that he said all the right things. He, for many years, did all the right things. But yet, he renounces his Christianity, his faith. He's divorcing his wife. And it's what, what, is a, what a tragedy. And I want to just read you in his own words what he said. He said, By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And then he went on to say that his faith and his marriage were based upon formulas. They never went any deeper than that. Based on formulas. Never went deep. Nine years as a lead pastor leading thousands of people. And he says, my faith never went deeper than just knowing the right stuff, doing the things, but never deep. His mentor and friend, Michael Ferris, who's a, a prominent attorney, he wrote this about Joshua Harris in an open letter. And he said the only reason he wrote an open letter was because Joshua Harris would not respond to his own calls, his calls or any personal contact. And so he said, Jesus says about people like you, that in the last day he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You know what this means, because you never actually knew Jesus. As immersed as you were in Christian culture and a career as a pastor, you never actually knew Jesus. You haven't walked away from a relationship with Jesus. You have walked away from the culture you were raised in. Did you get that? You didn't walk away from Jesus because... If you knew Jesus, you would not walk away from Jesus. And I think that it's easy for us in a cultural Christianity kind of place in, in the world here, in the South, which is quickly changing. But it's easy to have mental assent to the facts of Christianity, to the beliefs of Christianity, even do, even do the great things, but still not know Jesus. Faith isn't belief simply in God. Faith is not simply belief in historical Jesus, that Jesus actually walked on this earth. That's not Christianity. That's not faith. Faith is more than just a moral life. 
Faith is more than, more than just ascribing to a Christian worldview. Faith is more than just a decision of the will. Here's what faith is. Brent, one more slide, please. Uh, faith is the result of Jesus invading your soul with his life-giving spirit, which brings about satisfaction in all that God is for us in Christ. Let me read that again. Faith is a result of Jesus invading your soul with his life-giving spirit, the spirit we just sang about, which brings about satisfaction, not perfect satisfaction, and satisfaction that can move and change over time, but it brings about a satisfaction for all that God is for us in Christ. And so while we can't give a perfect definition for you to analyze your heart here today, only you and God can look and say, you know what, am I, do I, is this really something deep within me about Jesus that I own? Has Jesus invaded me, invaded my soul, and changed what I value in this world, what I'm looking for in this world, what I daydream about in this world, that Jesus is that for me? And so as we look at this passage of Scripture today in Mark chapter 7, I want us to keep in mind this idea of, is Jesus really in you? Is Jesus really in you? Are you really in Jesus? Has he invaded your life? Have you trusted him and believing him with all that you are and all that you have? Verse 31 of chapter 7, let's read this together. He says, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven, he sighed sighed, and he said, Epitha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them that they should tell no one. But the, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He, may, he, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage of Scripture. Father God, we thank you for your spirit that comes and changes us, changes our deepest desires, changes our heart, and begins to make us more and more like you. And the whole reason we're going through this gospel is so we can become more like Jesus. And God, I pray that you will allow those who are discouraged, those who are frustrated today, maybe they're angry with themselves for maybe their home situation, their marriage, their personal lives, and there's a lot that They just don't have to be excited about today with their relationship with you. I pray that today you will encourage them. And for those here who have been going in a different direction altogether from you, that they know that there's nothing really deep there in them, that it's it's shallow, it's just intellectual, it's a worldview, and it's not a relationship with you. God, I pray you'll point that out to them and show them the difference today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've looked at Jesus kind of going through the regions of Israel, Judea, and he's been doing some healing. He's been preaching a lot. He's been casting out demons. We've seen all these things over the last weeks. Last week, he, you remember, that he was with a Gentile lady, and 
he was able to uh, cast a, the demon out of her daughter, and she came humbly before Jesus asking for that. And so he's kind of on Gentile turf here. He's still meeting with Gentiles. And we talked about what Gentiles were. It's important to remember that Gentiles were the primary audience that Mark was writing to in the, book, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, Jesus was um, here in these, in these Gentile regions for the point of he wanted to authenticate himself. He wanted to show that the gospel was open to more than, more than just these elite Jews, the, the religious establishment of Israel, but that the gospel, that his message was for all people. And so Mark is writing for a specific purpose to convince the Gentile readers that Jesus was truly the Son of God, is truly the Son of God. That's Mark's purpose for this. So he's writing to show the Gentiles the door has been opened wide for them and that like this Gentile lady that we looked at last week who Jesus said she had mega faith. That's pretty awesome. A Gentile woman and Jesus praises her faith in such a large way as opposed to those who knew the scriptures inside and out. They had lots of knowledge about stuff, but yet they did not believe in Jesus. God himself standing right before them. They knew all the scriptures about God. They didn't recognize God when he showed up. And so the Gentiles are being given this invitation to come to Jesus, to come close to Jesus. And Jesus is doing these healings and doing these teaching to them so that they can know for sure that God's plan has always been inclusive to them. It's always been inclusive to them that the, the religious people of Israel had made them the outsiders we talked about last week, that they were considered unclean, impure, and they would have nothing to do versus that from the beginning God wanted Israel to be a light to the nations, to take uh, and show God's blessings to the nations. And so we talked about why that uh, the Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews were God's chosen people because the Messiah would come through the Jewish lineage, through the Jewish line. Jesus was a Jew. And so they were God's chosen people, but sure not to the exclusion of everyone else. And so I, I love that Mark points this out in very vivid language in the original language. There's just some, and I'm not a linguist, but there, there's just some things that you can't get across at, for translating from one language to another because, like, for instance, the, the word love, we know we've heard this before probably, that the Greeks had five, at least five words for love. We have one word for love. And so it's hard to convey that in English when you're translating something from Greek that has more options than just one word love. And so when we look at this verse, this, this is great. Verse 32, he says, They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And that's the word we're going to look at in just a second. And they begged him to lay hands and, on him and heal him. So they brought this deaf guy to Jesus. And this guy was probably not deaf from birth. And the reason why I say that he was probably not deaf from birth is the fact that he was not a mute, but, or th this term they use, speech impediment, that he was able to speak some, he was able to communicate at some level, but he wasn't able to communicate clearly, for, probably for where people could understand him. In the college I went to, the Christian college I went to, we had a huge educational department that was reached out to deaf people. And so lots of deaf people came to our college and during our church services and during our chapels, we'd have someone stand in the corner and do sign language for the entire service so the deaf people could know what was being said. And, and so I made some pretty good friends who were deaf. And one guy I remember, his name was Mark, he could actually communicate at a pretty decent because he had lost his hearing 
probably when he was five or six, so he began to develop language, but then he lost his ability to, to hear, which then affected his speech in a big way. And so that's probably what you have here, this guy who had this speech impediment. And the adjective here in the Greek uh, is far from a, a common usage of what they would have said during this time. The, in fact, the only occurrence that we have in the New Testament of this particular word is right here in this text. All right, so hang with me for a second. I know it's Family Worship Sunday, going a little deep here, but hang with me for a second because this is really, really cool if you stick with it. All right, so only one time is this used throughout the entire New Testament. It's right here in this passage. Well, in the what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. So the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, that, that Bible was then translated into the common vernacular of the day, which is Greek. And if you look at the Septuagint, which is that translation, there's only one usage of this word in the whole Old Testament as well. And so only one usage. So you got Mark using a term that he specifically knows would tie back to only an Old Testament word there. What is that word? It's found in Isaiah 35, verse 6. Let me read this for you. It says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. All right, so you're looking, okay, what's the significance about that? Well, if we had time, and I encourage you to do this, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 34 and read that chapter, what's happening there in that chapter, the prophet Isaiah is pronouncing this divine judgment upon Israel. And God's going to come in and he's going to take away the land from the Jewish people from the Israelites, he's going to take it away, and he's going to be basically just lay waste to the land. He's going to devastate the land. But here's the cool thing. Any time that God, almost every time when God pronounces judgment upon his people, he always extends hope. He always shows them that there is this word for the future and gives them that, hey, this is not the end. You're my people. I'm not going to abandon you. And they give hope for the future. And so God doesn't abandon his people. So in chapter 35, Isaiah gives us a picture of the future after the judgment. So Isaiah is predicting the judgment that's coming on. But he's saying there's hope after the judgment. And he shows us what that hope is. Now let me read that verse in its entire context here in in, in these four verses. I encourage you again to go back and read this whole chapter. It says in verse 30, uh, uh, chapter 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and that shall be called... The way of holiness. The way of holiness. What he's doing is he's predicting, he's prophesying a future time when Jesus the Messiah will come to restore us to God. This is prophetic and he's, he's pointing and Mark's making sure this is crystal clear to his audience that centuries before Jesus was born, God was giving the message of hope to his people, looking past the destruction and desolation to the messianic age when Jesus would break through and the Messiah was, would come. What is the Messiah, you ask? The Messiah was the anointed one, the one who would bring us back to God, to bring us salvation. And so he promises in that passage that 
the Messiah would give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and he would loosen the tongue of the mute. And so the people who would subsequently read this, the Jewish people, knew exactly the connection that was being made here. The disciples, I'm sure, were aware. They were a little slow on most things, but they were aware of the connection that was being made here. And it's cool that 2,000 years later, here we are looking at this prophetic message given, and here Jesus, the Messiah, comes on, this, on the scene. And I can imagine the, the Pharisees and the scribes, if they're still hanging around at this moment, and they're just watching this, and they for sure know exactly what the connotation here, the connection is. And they're thinking blaspheme. They're thinking, kill this guy, get him off the scenes. Jesus, the Messiah, yeah, right. This is not what the Messiah is going to be. And so no doubt Mark had this incredible prophecy in mind, and this healing powerfully connects Jesus to it. So the people bring this guy to Jesus, and they beg Jesus to lay hands on him. They want him to heal him, verse verse 33 and 34. So Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately, and what's he do? What's he do? Jake, come here, help me real quick. Come here, man. You always get picked on because you sit sit up front, all right? Family Worship Sunday, I like to bring one of the kids up here, and Jake's my main target. Of course, when I call him by the wrong name, that's not good, right? So so if if you're, you can't hear, what's that called? called being deaf, right? And a mute means you can't talk, okay? So Jesus pulls the guy away privately, okay? First of all, what we, we talked about, Jews should have no contact with Gentiles. Jesus just being near the Gentile would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. The scribes and the Pharisees, they would say, you're unclean, you're filthy, and go and take a bath and wash and cleanse. But Jesus, what's he do? He comes near. And not only does he come near, but he takes his fingers and he puts them inside the guy's ears. And then I won't do what else Jesus did, but you know what he did? This kind of gross. He, he spit on his hand, and then he reached and touched the guy's tongue. That's pretty nasty, isn't it? I won't do that. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Give him a hand. And I, and I believe, and, and, and what we know for sure is Jesus came near. And Jesus was very, very clear that sinners were welcome to him. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That we know for certain. This is a little bit more speculative, but as I've read through the Gospels over and over again and, and, and over my lifetime, the parables of Jesus are interesting. And I talked about this a little bit last week, how that Jesus spoke a lot in parables. And a lot of times, they weren't these drawn-out long stories like the prodigal son. They were like a word or a phrase. But I think this, this whole illustration here is a parable in nature. Why? Because Jesus didn't need to go to these theatrics and do this, this stuff to heal this guy, right? I mean, he didn't need to do that. All he needed to do was just think it or say the word, and the guy's healed, right? So Jesus literally pulls him aside. And can you imagine the crowd and the people watching? And they're a little bit out, maybe out of earshot, but, but Jesus begins to do these things, stick his fingers in this guy's ear, touches his tongue, and he sighs and he looks up to heaven. And what's he saying? He's saying, not only do I draw near to sinners, but I love them enough that I'm willing to engage them. And and maybe a picture of the gospel, that it's not just I stand off and tell you something, but I enter in, I invade you with my truth, with my life. And so Jesus touches his ears, and he brings life back to his ears. He touches his tongue, and all of a sudden it becomes alive again. And he looks up to heaven, 
And everyone knew for certain what that was about, that Jesus was saying, here's where my power comes from. It comes from God the Father. I do only what I see the Father doing. I listen to the Father. And so Jesus, I think, he, he's given us this gospel parable. He's shown us these things, and, he's watch, and everyone is watching as these things are happening. Isn't it just like Jesus, though? That Jesus doesn't just stand on the outside. You see, for Joshua Harris, Jesus was on the outside. He would not let Jesus in based on what we see today. I hope that time tells us something different here. But he knew who Jesus was. He could preach Jesus in a great way. He could articulate his faith. He knew his theology. He was well looked up to in all the circles that he was in. He was a prominent person. Yet, by his own omission, it was simply a formula. There wasn't a relationship. Jesus had never entered into him. The Holy Spirit had never infused life into him. He had never invaded his dead soul with the truth of the gospel. You see, that's why Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I say it all the time, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. See, Christ makes residence in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And something radical happens when Jesus invades us. He transforms our heart. And let's go back to a few messages before. What did we say heart was? That's our deepest affections, our deepest desires. He begins to bend us toward himself more and more. And so look at your life. Is it bending more and more toward Jesus and his ways? Do the deepest desires of your heart, who you are, do they long for Jesus? Do they long for his truth? Do they long for, to commune with him, to know him? Or not? Not perfectly. This is a process. Sanctification is a process that happens. Becoming more like Christ, that's what sanctification is. But it should be happening in your life. And so Jesus invades this man. And the heart that was dead now beats with life. And the person who comes to Christ, their heart now beats with Holy Spirit power. Christ in you, Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want to encourage you today, no matter where you're at in your life, no matter how frustrated you are, change is possible. Victory over that besetting sin, that tormenting sin is possible because Jesus invaded you if you know him as your savior he lives in you he doesn't just stand away and preach at you and say here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do jesus takes up residence in our life through the holy spirit and guides you through illuminating his word and his words are like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and as we read the word the word becomes real because the holy spirit takes it and makes it real in our life So Jesus, what does he do? And we'll get back to that thought in just a second. Jesus heals him, but he charges him, don't tell anyone. Why, why would he say not tell anyone, right? I thought we are supposed to go declare it on the mountain. Tell it on the mountain, right? But he, it, this is, we've talked about this several times already. It's not time yet. Jesus doesn't want to be known as a miracle man, a miracle worker. That's not why he was here. That wasn't his mission. His mission was 
to preach the gospel of the kingdom and ultimately to give his life for the salvation, to be the lamb offered for the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. So it's not time. He doesn't want to escalate, continue to escalate this with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders of the day. And so that time will come. It's not yet. And so verse 37, I love this verse, that they said they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus does all things well. You know why I'm glad Jesus does all things well, honestly? Because I don't, right? You don't either. And you know what that gives me? That gives me hope. If you're in Christ, if you know Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives within you, get this, your life is not out of control. Even if you feel like it's completely and utterly out of control right now, if you feel like that you just, it, it's one step forward and two steps back continually, you just can't keep your act together, it seems like the, 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 you're so discouraged anytime you ever open your Bible and you tried that before to spend time with God and it just seems like that you might as well just be you know, talking to the ceiling because your prayers don't feel like they're going anywhere. If you're there, don't quit because Jesus doesn't quit on you. Jesus doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't quit on you. He invaded you. He gave his life giving power to you. He's giving you the Holy Spirit to make you alive. Everything he does is good. Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, Paul says. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. He's going to finish what he started. If he invaded your life, your heart, if the Holy Spirit is in you, no matter what it feels like, and no matter how distant God may seem at the moment, no matter how discouraging life may be, and no matter how bad your marriage or your family may be at this moment, God assures you, he promises you that he's going to complete what he started because he does all things good. He doesn't abandon his people So write this down in your notes, if you're taking notes. Despite life's uncertainties and difficulties, and no matter how many spiritual defeats there may be along the way, Jesus is working for your good and God's glory. He's working in these moments for your good and God's glory. You say, it it, it sure doesn't feel good. God says, I'm going to complete what I started. The day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we don't always get the full satisfaction of health, wealth, and prosperity and all the things that we sometimes lean to and think that's God's blessings on this earth and have been told maybe by preachers who want to work this for their benefit or have bad theology that that's the goal. But working for your good is what? That word I use, sanctification, becoming more like Christ in your life. That's the goal that God's working toward. And that will happen when we stand face to face before God. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. That's what we want. Not because we lived a perfect life, but because we worship someone who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. He became sin for us who knew no sin, 
that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? Have we heard that so many times that we, we, we lose the significance of that? That when God looks at us, even when we fail again and again and again, if we're in Christ, if Christ has invaded us, if the Holy Spirit is in us, he sees the righteousness of God. And so many people will say, well, if that's the case, then what does it matter? Like, I, I can just do whatever I want because God looks at me and sees the righteousness of Christ. But Paul tells us, he says, how can you who are dead to sin continue any longer therein? You see, you died to sin, as illustrated in baptism. And so God has changed the bent and direction of your life that says, I, I want to be more like Christ. I desire more Christ-likeness. I desire to die to sin and get victory over these sins. And so a true Christian, a true believer, could not very long camp out on that. Oh, if God's forgiven me, then what's it matter? Either you have a horrible understanding of Scripture, which you don't any longer, so no excuses, or... You're just choosing to believe a lie. God is going to finish what he started because of Jesus. So it's not, are you trusting some scripture today? Or are you trusting in your cultural Christianity today? And it's not, are you banking on a formula that you know the right things to say? And it's not, are you trusting a prayer that you prayed back when you were seven years old at a revival? The question is, are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting your life into his hands? He who began a good work will complete it. God doesn't abandon his children. And he does all things good, including you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. For your word that changes our perspective on our problems. It changes our thought processes in those moments where we drift towards selfishness. It changes the way we view our enemies. It alters the way that we view our spouses. And God, your word trains us and teaches us into righteousness. And your Holy Spirit guides us and directs us. And God, I pray for the believer here who really is struggling at this moment to really make sense of their life. God, may they trust your promises. Trust that you do all things good. That you're working for their good and your glory, ultimately, God. And God, for those in here who really, truly, honestly, in their heart of hearts know that all they've done is accepted some form of cultural Christianity, but there's really no true desire to make, allow their light to shine before men. That, As your scripture says, that people will see their good works and glorify God, you God in heaven. I pray that they will today admit, even as we take communion, that they will for the first time take it as a true believer, one who truly has allowed you to invade their heart and faith is alive in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.